Good morning and thank you. Thank you for helping us get the praise started this morning. <clears throat> Dr. Helen Rosevere, I mentioned her last week. She was a medical missionary to the Congo in the 1950s and 60s. She died this past December. You can Google her name and watch some wonderful and very worthwhile interviews of her. She tells the story of overseeing a primitive medical compound in 1962 with, uh, when a young evangelist pastor and his wife brought their little boy, who was very sick, for help. The facilities were very limited, and at first she was not able to diagnose what his problem was, so she brought him into her home, set up a cot so she could observe him and better take care of him. As the days passed, little Timothy became worth, worse, and eventually little blisters broke out all over his body, and she realized his condition, he had smallpox. Dr. Rosevere had never seen a case of smallpox before, but she knew that the people in the village had never been vaccinated and that an epidemic would be catastrophic. So she immediately went into action, putting a quarantine in place. No one was to leave the village. No one was to enter the village. All meetings and activities were canceled in an attempt to minimize the spread. She set up a makeshift fence around her house and since there was no electricity and no telephones, she would yell instructions across the yard to the other medical staff and the other people about what they needed to do. Little Timothy would not survive. She called the pastor to the fence by banging on a talking drum, and he and some of his men went out into the field and dug a grave. Later that night, she and Timothy's father would go in silence except for the sobs of the father, and she would carry his body and he would carry the shovels. Five more patients would show up at her house with symptoms, and so she put out an SOS for help from the African nursing staff. Since none of them had been vaccinated, volunteering would be at great personal risk. And yet, one of the staff nurses named Suzanne volunteered. She would go on to be the sixth person to contract the disease. Um, those six, however, would all go on to recover. Dr. Rosevere wrote that each evening she and Suzanne and Timothy's parents would gather for a time of prayer and Bible reading. And one night the doctor brought along a book that someone had sent her, J.C. Ryle's book on holiness. She had been reading it, and she shared a little with the others, and then she read a passage from it and translated it into Swahili. When she stopped reading, the young pastor said, don't stop. God is speaking. These words are like honey. And so began a pattern during the four and a half weeks of isolation. Every night after the chores and the work of the day, the four of them would meet and study what the Bible had to say about holiness. And they would go on to say that after studying it, their lives would never be the same. I wonder if you find it odd that of all the topics they could have studied 
They picked holiness. Why during a time of tragedy and suffering would they study that? Why, when they were already sacrificing and serving, would they need a lesson on holiness? Why, during a time of trial and suffering, would words about God's holiness be like honey? If you have your Bibles or your observation worksheets, would you turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13? We're going to read all the way through chapter 2. We've got a lot of reading. And as I do, I want you to watch for something. I want you to watch for the shift that takes place from Peter addressing his readers as individuals to addressing them as a body. Okay, so I want you to watch for the group mentality that surfaces in these um, verses. Here we go. 1 Peter 1.13, Therefore, prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy." If you address his father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the word of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again of seed which is perishable, no, born again not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and sl all slander, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. And coming to him as a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Okay, if you did your homework, you know that your topic this week is going to be, was on holiness. Now, we recently spent an entire semester on the topic of holiness. And so if um, you weren't here or you need a quick review, you can go back and listen to those podcasts. But because of that, this morning, we're going to do something a little different. Rather than talk about personal holiness, we want to focus on corporate holiness. What does it mean for the body to be holy? 
and how would that be an encouragement during suffering and trials? Okay, now to try to answer that, we're just going to work right through this passage. Okay, so let's start by defining what we mean by the word holy. All right, verse 16 says, you shall be holy for I am holy. Now, I want you to notice when he speaks of holiness, uh, this verse is talking about the holiness of God. It is also talking about the holiness of believers. And so we're going to make our definition. We're going to break it down in the same way. All right, let's start with God's holiness. Now, if you were to ask your Sunday school class for a definition of God's holiness or what holiness is, most likely someone is going to use the word pure. They're going to say pure. They're going to say sinless. And they would be right or partially right. All right, so first point on your handout, holiness in relation to God. Number one, holiness means purity, free from every stain holy, perfect, and immaculate in every detail. Now, part of the definition, that part of the definition is usually the first thing that your average um, churchgoer thinks of, but that's actually more of a secondary meaning, okay? The primary meaning has more to do with God's otherness. You might remember we said that the root meaning of the word holiness means to cut or to separate. And so we talked about using, when we use it to speak of God, we talk about how God is a cut above. He's off our scales. So um, here's our next point. Number two, when the Bible calls God holy, it means primarily that God is transcendentally separate. Okay, now let's, let's remember when Peter is writing this. He is writing to Christians who are scattered across Asia Minor. Now, we've said that they're probably not enduring that intense legal um, persecution. That's probably around the corner, but, but we know that they're being slandered. They're being maligned. Their friends are, are wondering, hey, why don't you go out and party and corrals like you used to? They're, they're suffering rejection. We know that they're um, being intimidated. We know that they're, um, they're anxious. They're feeling, um, they're experiencing distressing trials. Okay, that's what they're going through. And what does Peter tell them? What does Peter remind them? He reminds them God is holy. God is holy. Do you know what God wants you to know when you're suffering? When you're going through the smallpox outbreak or you're going through some other distressing trial? He says to you the same thing. Oh, dear child, I am holy. I am not like you. I am other than. I transcend and surpass everything in every way. That's holiness. R.C. Sproul writes, he is so far above and beyond us that he seems almost totally foreign to us. To be holy is to be other to be different in a special way. And I have that on your papers. To be different in a special way. Now, we want to make a mental note of that because we just read that God is holy, but we also read that we are to be holy. So let's try to move on and define what we mean when we speak of the holiness as it relates to believers. And here's point number three on your papers. 
the most basic meaning of the word holy is to be set apart or dedicated to God, to belong to God. Okay, and you may remember from our holiness course that we divided that into two parts. We said, A, that is positional holiness. That's the setting apart by God, which is done to you at salvation. This is, God does this. And then there is B, there's a practical holiness. That's the holiness that we are to pursue. That's, that's our responsibility. And we sometimes refer to that as sanctification. Okay, so is Peter saying that because God is holy, we are to be pure and good? Is he? Yes. Yes, he's certainly saying that. We are to live lives of purity, but there's more up to that, isn't there? He's saying that we're to live lives that reflect the holiness of God. We're to live lives that are foreign and other and different in a special way. Okay, there are to be lives that are distinguishable, not because we're weird, but because there's something supernatural about them. There's something transcending about them, and not just individually, but as a group. Because remember, we said this passage has got the group mentality. Okay, so what will corporate holiness look like? Well, um, let's look at verse 13. Verse 13 says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. All right, verse 13. It starts with the word, therefore. Maybe some of you marked your papers this week. Okay, if you remember from last week, we said when we see the word, therefore, we're going to ask, what do we ask? What is it there for? Absolutely. We said that it is like saying that what follows is invalid if not connected. Okay, so we shall connect. If we were to look back at those first 12 verses, what has Peter been expounding on for the first 12 verses in this book? What if I were to say to you, summarize it for me in a word, what he's been praising and talking about in the first 12 verses of Peter, First Peter? What would you say? Nice and loud. Salvation, absolutely. This is salvation, grace. The whole 12 verses are all about that. And then you get to verse 13, and he says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Now, in Greek, those are actually participles, and they would read like this. Having prepared your minds for action. Having kept sober in spirit. So the first imperative that you get to in this chapter is the word fix. Right? That's the verb, that's the action, that's the imperative or command. So you get, therefore, fix. Fix your hope. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you. Here's our next point, number four. The first command in the book is fix your hope completely on grace. The command is to fix on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, your future grace. And we're to be completely fixed on that. All right, that means that everything you do, everything you think, is to be evaluated in light of that future grace. That means that everything that you experience, you're going to look at through your grace filter. 
Do you have a grace filter? Here's our next quote, next point, and it's a K. Arthur quote. She says, number five, everything must be seen or evaluated in light of your salvation. Have you ever heard the expression that someone is looking through rose-colored glasses? Sometimes it's usually a dig, and it means that someone is very optimistic, and they're looking at things, and they're always seeing things as better than they really are. Okay, Peter would say, you need to wear your grace-colored glasses. You need to wear your, uh, you need to, wait a minute, I've lost my place. You need to be wearing your grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ-colored glasses. Now, am I saying that we're just to be a bunch of Pollyannas? and go around with smiles on our faces, no matter what distressing trial we face. Or that if you have a girlfriend that's going through something difficult, you just put a smile on your face and you tell her, grace is coming. Okay, no, no. No, Peter, that's not what Peter means. He knows that we're still going to mourn, and we're still going to hurt, and we're still going to feel, and we're still going to comfort but that now we will evaluate it through grace in light of our salvation, in light of our future grace. Now we're going to evaluate it as women with hope because we have a future grace that can never be taken away. Let me ask you, do people see us as a group of women with hope? Or do they see us as just as anxious and as anxiety-ridden as the next group? And if so, why? Well, Peter gives us some insights on why that might be. He starts out this verse, therefore prepare your minds for action. In the Greek, it actually reads, having girded the loins of your mind having girded the loins of your mind, girded loins. You've probably talked about this in your Sunday school classes before. That was a term that they would use to describe the way men would bring their robes up through their legs and then tuck the the robes into their belt or a girdle. And so that way, you know, they could run or move or they would be ready for action if their loins were girded. Okay, now if you were trying to work or move and you had your robes flapping, you know, you would get tangled, you would get twisted, you'd be more likely to trip and get tangled up. Peter is saying, gird your loins. John Piper translates it this way. He says, turn the robes of your mind into running shorts. (laughs) What is causing you to trip or stumble? What's keeping you tangled and twisted and earthly-minded? Because this is something that you are responsible to do as a part of the body. You are responsible to keep your minds girded. Turn the robes of your mind into running shorts. Okay, also it says stay sober. Sometimes you'll see the word self-control there in some of your versions. It means, and I have this on your paper, to be in control of one's thought processes and thus not in danger of irrational 
thinking. Let me ask you, as a group, are we running around with the robes of our minds flapping and tripping and stumbling? Spiritually speaking, are we distracted or dazed, undisciplined? Or are we alert and thinking and ready for action? If something were to happen to one of us in this room, are the rest of us ready with girded loins, ready to come around her, prepared for action? How do we prepare for suffering? Well, we have girded loins of our mind and we stay sober. Here's our next point. Number six, we have, are to have holy thinking. Okay, as called out ones, we are to be holy and transformed in our thinking, fixing our hope on our future grace. Okay, let's move on. Verse 14, let's look at that. It says this, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. Right, jump to verse 18. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with, pre- but with precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. All right. This whole next section is addressing behavior and conduct. All right. And that word lusts is not just referring to sexual lust. It's much broader. It means, and I have this on your paper, all kinds of seeking, whether directed toward wealth, power, or pleasure. Okay, Peter is telling us, you are not to be conformed to that anymore. There's going to be a break there's going to be a disruption from your past lifestyles. Why? Because now you know what your futile way of life cost Jesus to redeem your sin. You're not ignorant anymore. Now you know about grace. One day I was um, working in the kitchen. The boys were little, they were probably about eight and 10. And I could overhear them fighting. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. And I could hear this go back and forth. And my first thought was just to pretend I wasn't hearing it. I was just going to keep moving. (laughs) But something told me uh, otherwise I needed to see what was going on. So so I went in and I said, hey, 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 what's going on? What's going on? And my oldest said to me, "Um, yesterday he told dad that I turned on the treadmill, but I didn't do it. And I got in trouble for it. He lied. He lied. He told dad I did it. And he lied. And I didn't do it. And, and my other son said, no, I didn't. Yes, you did. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. And it went back and forth. And I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Which one of you took the little red key and put it into the machine and switched it on? And um, Garrett, my youngest, he raised his hand and said, um, that would be me. And I said, okay, do you, do you realize what you did? And he said, I lied. And I said, well, you turned on the treadmill. Now, tell your brother you're sorry and just go back and play. And don't ever lie again. And I just kind of sent them on their way. <laughs> so I could go back to what I was doing. Well, um, 
I went back to working in the kitchen, and a little while later, Garrett followed me in. He was a new believer at the time, and he sat down at the kitchen table, and he looked just uh, so distraught and very weepy, and like he was getting ready to cry. So I, so I walked over to him, and I said, what, what's the matter? Did, did you think I was too hard on you? What, are you not telling me everything? What's going on? And um, he just sat there, and he said, it's just sad. And I said, yeah, yeah, it is. Sin, sin is sad. I said, you know, when, when you told Daddy that, that Grant turned it on, you know, Daddy, he got the wrong idea, and he yelled at the wrong kid, and that relationship was hurt, and your relationship with Grant was hurt. It's, you're, you're right. It makes a mess of things. I said, um, we need to make this right. You, you need to call Daddy and tell him, you know, what went on. So he, he said, I agree. So we called up, um, he called up my husband on the phone, and as soon as he heard uh, his dad's voice, he began to just, he broke out into tears and began to just sob. And he was saying, it was me. It was, it was me. It was all me. It was all me. Can you ever forgive me? Can you ever forgive me? Can you ever forgive me? And, um, and of course, my husband was on the other side of the phone. He was going, son, I forgive you. Yes, yes, son, I forgive you. Now hand the phone to your mother. And he handed the phone to me. <laughs> and my husband said, what is going on? <laughs> I said, I'll fill you in at home. And uh, he, he hung up with his dad. And um, then he went back and he had a, a, a heartfelt apology to his brother. And I kind of just sat there wondering what had just happened. But um, I realized that I had watched someone sorrow over sin. He was sad over his sin. Ladies, do you ever sorrow over your sin? And see, it is sad. That day, I, I realized how desensitized I was, and I thought, Lord, I don't, I don't sorrow over my sin. My, my, I'm not sad about my sin, and I know why because I don't think it's that bad. I think to myself, it's all up here. Nobody can even tell I'm doing it. That's not hurting anyone. It's not as bad as what she's doing. And I, and I rationalize. And I had forgotten a very childlike, simple truth that my sin is against a holy God and that it cost Jesus Christ his blood to redeem my sin. Sin is sad because it is not redeemed by perishable things like silver and gold and good works, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Our behavior is to reflect our knowledge about sin. We used to be ignorant but now we know what it cost God to save us. We know how sad sin is. 
we're going to conduct ourselves in reverence and fear because God is our Father and God is our judge. Here's our next point. Number seven, we are to have holy behavior as called out ones. We are to have obedient and reverent lifestyles sensitive to sin and God's justice. Helen Rosevere wrote, we were gripped by two facts of the necessity for judgment of sin because God is holy and of the necessity of holiness in the Christian that he may represent such a God to others. She's saying we need to be holy in our behavior if the world is going to understand that God is holy and judges sin. How can we relate to the lost that they need a savior from sin if the church is not sad and broken about sin, not judgmental, sad and broken. You see, generally, we're not sad about sin. We laugh about it. How? Can we have an impact on the world if we are still conformed to our former lifestyles? Okay, let's move on to the next verse. And we're going to work through these a little more quickly. Their review from last week. Verse 22 says, Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. All right, number eight on your papers is a holy love. As called out ones, we are to have a brotherly and sacrificial love for the body of Christ. Okay, love is going to be characterizing everything that we do and how we relate to one another. Okay, an onlooker should immediately be able to look at us and know that we love each other, that we love each other's kids, okay, that we have a mask-free affection for each other. Okay? Now, we talked about that last week. All right, let's also look at chapter 2, verse 2. We said, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Number nine on your papers is a holy appetite. Holy appetites as called out ones. We are to have an appetite for God's word. We talked about this last week. This morning, we really want to ask as a group, are we craving the milk of the word of God? Do you realize that if we are craving this as a group, it's going to be in our conversations when we get together? What do you talk about when you get together? Your new diets? The shows you're watching? Other women? If God's word is not coming up, if it's not a part of our conversations, a possible reason for that is we're not craving it. Okay, here's our next point. And it's coming from the same verse. It says, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Our next point is number 10, holy growth 
as called out ones, we will grow and mature in our faith. We have been meeting and studying together for about five years. What if we were to give ourselves a report card? Have we grown as a group in respect to our salvation? Now, you might be thinking to yourself, what would constitute growth? That would be a good question. What would be on the report card? Well, our list will help, okay? As a group, how are we thinking? Are we able to help one another with sound biblical thinking? Are we helping one another gird up the loins of our mind? Or are we adding to the flapping and the tangling and the confusion? What about our behavior? As a group, are we more sensitive to sin? As a group, does sin make us sad? Are we living our lives like we know what it cost Jesus Christ to redeem us? Okay, how, how about our love? Are we loving one another? Are we putting each other's needs above our own? Would people look at us and say, I want to know the love of a group of women like that? What about our appetites? How are our appetites, have they increased for things of God? How is your appetite affecting the body? My, um, my one son, when he was in high school, at this time he was going to a Christian high school, and he uh, wanted to start a Bible study for his friends before school where they could come together and just be accountable to one another and talk to each other about what God was showing them and what they were learning uh, from God's word. Well, a bunch of people came, but they never talked. They never had anything to share. And that was, he found that frustrating. And I said to him, maybe they don't have anything to say. If they're not in the word of God, they're not going to be hearing God speak to them, and they're not going to have anything to talk about. Listen, you need to be in the Word of God, not just for your own good, but for our good. Do you realize that when you are in the Word of God, we benefit? Now, we need to be growing as a group in respect to salvation. Now, why is that such a big deal? Let's keep reading. Verse 4 in chapter 2. And coming to him, now that's Jesus. This first part is about Jesus. And coming to him as a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, he's <clears throat> talking to us, as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. All right, Peter likens us to a living stones being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. All right, we're going to venture out of 1 Peter for a little bit this morning. I want us to go back and find 2 Chronicles chapter 5. All right, that's Old Testament. You got your Samuels, then your Kings, and then your Chronicles. Might be a little hard to find. We haven't been back there in a while. We're going to 2 Chronicles 
5, chapter 11, we are in a, a part of the Bible that is describing the temple. The temple is being built. It's, in fact, in, in this place, it's just been built, and they are getting ready to have an elaborate dedication service for it. So we come to 2 Chronicles 5, 11. Now, here's what I want you to do as we're reading. I want you to think of a word that you might use that would be able to describe what we're reading. A word or two. And then I also want you to watch for the word priests. Okay, here we go. Second Chronicles 5, 11. When the priests came forth from the holy place, for all the priests who were present had sanctified themselves without regard to divisions, and all the Levitical singers, Asaph, Heman, Jaduthan, and their sons and kinsmen clothed in fine linen with cymbals, harps, and lyres standing east of the altar. And with them, 120 priests blowing trumpets in unison with the trumpeters and the singers were to make themselves heard with one voice to praise and to glorify the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice accompanied by trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music, and when they praised the Lord saying, he indeed is good for his loving kindness is everlasting. Then the house, the house of the Lord was filled with the cloud so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. Okay, all of the musicians and the singers were Levites. They were Levitical, okay? You may remember about the tribe of Levites. They were, they were the tribe of Israel that was to be set apart for the priesthood, okay? You may remember they never inherited their own land. They were scattered throughout the land to be acting as priests, okay? Now, if we were to keep reading this passage, we would read how Solomon, he comes before the people, he blesses them, he bows down, and he begins to pray, and it is a very long prayer, and we're not going to take the time to read it today, but if you jump to chapter 7, same, same book, chapter 7, verse 1. Chapter 7, verse 1 says this, now when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the house. Okay, why are we reading 2 Chronicles? Well, for starters, it is a passage where we see both the priesthood and we're seeing the temple, both things that Peter is comparing us to. Okay, but also because this is one of the most glorious, most splendid, most spectacular scenes in all of the Bible. Okay, you've got the priests, they've got themselves prepared, they're all sanctified, they've sanctified themselves. You've got the Levitical musicians and the instruments and the singers. I, I once had a conductor tell me that this would have been a very elaborate scene to orchestrate. It's very intentional, okay? Everyone is doing what they're supposed to be doing. Everyone's in sync. They're all of one mind, and look what happens. It says, the glory of the Lord is visibly filling the house so that the priest cannot stand. God himself sends fire from heaven, and he lights the fire and consumes the sacrifice. Everything about it is glorious and majestic, and the name of God is made known to the nations. All right, now think about this, because Peter said, you also 
are living stones being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. Peter's saying, believers, you're the spiritual version of that. You have been set apart to be built and connected into a spiritual house that the glory of God can so fill and that God can light a fire and that God's name can be made known among the nations. You see, you were not intended to function as a living stone, singular. When it comes to your holiness, you are not an only child. You're not to be living spiritually as an only child. We are built together. We are to be living stones connected, building, building, building into a spiritual house that the glory of God can so fill that the, the priests cannot stand. I have no doubt that one of the things that Peter is telling us here is that if we are to suffer well, if we are to be able to endure and withstand trials and suffering, if we're to be able to live in a world that is hostile toward our faith, then we are going to need to live connected. But not just connected. Connected for the purpose of the glory of God. There's a difference. In your homework, some of your verses about spiritual sacrifices, you had some verses about spiritual sacrifices that we are to offer as a kingdom of priests. And in the most basic sense, priests are in the business of reconciliation. The priesthood and the temple both spoke of the, recon of, of the ministry of reconciliation. Here's the next thing on our papers. Number 11, we are to have a holy purpose. As called out ones, we will be about the ministry of reconciliation, making the glory and beauty of God known to the nations. Are we living as a spiritual house, building on each other's lives as living stones? Are we connected, not just as a group of people, because honestly, you can, join, you can find that in a bowling league. We are, we are building and connected for the purpose of God's glory. All right, we're going to look at one last verse, and this is chapter 2, verse 6. It says this, For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word and to this doom they were also appointed. All right, Peter is doing some quoting from the Old Testament and Jesus himself in these verses. All right, and these verses are going to give us some great direction on what our message is going to be as priests and a part of a spiritual temple. And what is that message? There is one stone, one precious stone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. He does not disappoint. But if this stone is rejected, if someone is offended by him, there is stumbling, there is doom. 
The idea here is that you either build your life on the rock or you have the judgment of the rock fall on you. Here's our last point. We have a holy message. As called out ones, we have a message of hope and warning and the assurance that God's plans cannot be thwarted. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you'll help us be a, a holy people that will pursue personal holiness, but that we as a body will chase after it so that you might, so that your glory might be visible and felt and real to those around us. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I have several announcements before you go. First of all, two groups are going to be combining. Tammy's group, you'll be combining with Beth and Connie's group. We'll meet in room 310, back there with the big tables. Also, um, we do not have Abide next week. We have the week off, so you have two weeks to work on your next lesson. And so there's no Abide next week. We'll meet here in two weeks. And then finally, I was told that it was Becky's birthday. And so if you get a chance, sing to Becky. Happy birthday to Becky. <laughs> Becky Harrell. Okay, you're dismissed. <laughs>